This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The Joy of Light Burdens," was recorded at Wellspring Church on April 14, 2019. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 27. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 9 to 10, and if you could open your Bible and. Begin with the two chapters. I'm actually not going to read the whole text. We'll read just、uh, part of it, and we're going to read verses 32 through 38 of chapter nine. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you have, you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress because of all this. We make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let's pray together. We acknowledge that you are indeed Lord, and you are King, and we praise you and we thank you for your goodness to us. You are faithful beyond compare. And sometimes. In the midst of life and the struggles of life, we falter and fail you. Actually, quite often. But time and again, you welcome us home, and you bring us into your family because of what Jesus Christ did two thousand years ago. We remember that reality. That Jesus, you went on a donkey into Jerusalem, knowing that's. Only a week later, you would be nailed to a cross. You went into a trap, knowing that that trap was laid for yourself, but you did not turn away. You did not choose the road of comfort. Instead, you chose the road of the cross. And so, we come together this day to celebrate. What is a stark reality that, because of the blood shed for us through that wondrous work, we have new life forever and ever, and that begins now—not just in eternity, but today. Help us, O Lord, to embrace that and acknowledge it, and help us to see how Nehemiah chapters nine and ten speaks to that reality. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, because words of a person can do nothing, but by your power and your Spirit, you can cause us to hear things and see things in ways that we cannot on our own. 
We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. I think it's safe to say that um, if you were here last week, we, um, the fact that our society has many burdens, and there are burdens of loneliness that more than ever before, you might say, more than the history of the world, this society that we live in is lonelier and more depressed and more sorrowful than ever before, despite the so-called connectedness we have technologically. And in today's text, chapters 9 and 10, if, you have, if we were to spend this whole time reading this passage, and we will go through bits and parts of it, you will see there's a lot of sorrow, and yet a lot of rejoicing concurrently and simultaneously. And you might think to yourself, how does sorrow actually bring about the lightness of burden, because that's sort of what we're all looking for in some sense, and what society is looking for throughout the history of our world and our culture is, how do you release the burdens that we face? How do we experience freedom from depression and from difficulties? Because that is the, the challenges of our world and our culture today. And so we're going to look at this by recognizing that rather than trying to say that there's no place for such things, it's to understand that it's a transformation of those burdens. It's not that the burdens are released forever or gone, but instead it's the transforming factor of it all. And so we'll see this by chapters 9 and 10 through three ways. First is that remembering that God, first and foremost, never makes burdens heavy. We see that in chapter 9, verses 1 ourselves, that we are responsible for these heavy burdens in chapters 9, 16 through 30. And then lastly, we see it in the fact that we respond with joy in light of these, Ooh, excuse me, <laughs> that was to wake you up, um, in light of these burdens in chapters 9, verses 32 through 10 through 39. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Um, so... I hope that makes sense to you. Three things. Remembering that God never makes burdens heavy. Remember, realizing that we make burdens heavy ourselves. And then thirdly, we respond with the joy of light burdens. So first, remembering that God never made burdens heavy in chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah is a prayer. It's probably spoken by Ezra. It's spoken about three and a half weeks from chapter 8. So if you can recall, um, a couple of weeks ago, Ezra was speaking out the law of Moses out loud. He was reading the law and taking quite a long time to do so. And even though it was a long, drawn-out reading, it was one that struck the hearts of people so much they started weeping. And after the weeping, Nehemiah comes in and says, Stop weeping. This is a time for joy, and they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And then, three and a half weeks later after that, Ezra begins with this prayer. And he begins by telling mostly about who God is. In verse 6, we see this. He says, You are the Lord, you alone, and the hosts of heaven worships you. There's a, 
a known saying or an acronym that many Christians know when we pray, and it's the acronym ACTS. And the A stands for adoration. That is to say that a good form of a prayer begins with the recognition that we're to praise God, worship Him, delight in Him, exalt Him. And Ezra does exactly this. You are the Lord, you alone, and the host of heaven worships you. And the reason we're to do this is because until we recognize that our eyes have to be fixed on first and foremost God, if that doesn't happen, then what naturally happens is we fix our eyes on ourselves. And self-centered prayer is essentially prayer that is not spoken to God, but simply out of our own selfish ambition, which God does not desire. And on top of that, that type of prayer doesn't lift our burdens at all. I love the way Ed Welch, he's a counselor, and he puts it this way. He says, when God and spirituality are reduced to our standards or our feelings, God will never be to us the awesome Holy One of Israel. With God reduced in our eyes, a fear of people will thrive. You have to see that that is absolutely true. If we take our eyes off of God and his glory and his renown and his his splendor, our natural instinct is always to look upon ourselves as to be the center upon which we determine life to be. And then suddenly we become most important. And alongside that, complementary to that is that other people become very important. So it shouldn't astound us to understand that the more we fix our eyes on ourselves, the more we all as well are more concerned about what other people think of us. And the fear of man controls us. But when we turn our eyes towards God and care more about who he is, what he thinks of us, how he views us, especially in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us, it frees us from the burden of other people. And it actually sets a right, the right opinion of what other people are towards us. They don't control us anymore. Ezra make sure that we have a right view of God. And until that is set in stone in our souls, only then can we be freed from what other people do and think of us, and it frees us completely. Ezra's prayer continues by emphasizing God's faithfulness. If we look at verse 8, he says, And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Oh, this is such an important part of understanding the nature of, and interaction we have with God. Not only is he glorious and he is good and he is to be worshipped, but also he has been faithful to us. And until we understand how that is regularly a part of our lives, that he has faithfully kept his promises, that he's been true to his word. And Ezra is trying to say this, you have to understand, he's saying this to a people who are impoverished and poor. They also just completed this wall. And while we know that the story of Nehemiah is that this wall protects the people of Israel, but really outside these walls are enemies. And they want nothing more than to have these people be destroyed. And so there's a lot of threat. It's not a a peaceful place, you might say. They have nothing. They're starting from scratch. They essentially had another exodus from Persia. And 
they're, it's really quite tentative for them. Their families, security is definitely not part of their lives. And so what Ezra's saying is, when Israel first escaped from Egypt, God was with them. And God miraculously delivered them. And he was faithful to them even through the desert. Even when it was most difficult for them. And all they had was to trust in God. In that place was a wilderness. And wildernesses are incredibly difficult and challenging and treacherous. I've uh, recently been reading a book by Daniel James Brown, and it's called The Indifferent Stars. It tells the story of the Donner Party working its way from Illinois to California. And if any of you know their story, I actually didn't know about the story that much until reading this book. But they were lost in the Sierra Nevada the region, and you, most of us here understand this so well because we go to Tahoe in the wintertime. But you all drive your SUVs with chains and, you know, you go to your the Airbnbs or homes or vacation rentals and you go skiing and do all these things. Well, this was a time period in early to mid-1800s where they're making their trek across the way with wagons and actually not much. They make it to uh, to Truckee. And then to Donner, which is where the name comes from. And they run out of food. And if you know this story, they start eating each other. Um, it's actually quite, uh, <laughs> you want to read this book. It's very interesting. It's sort of horrific in its own way. But, you know, when I was reading this book, reading about their story of not being able to know, there was this one point where they're at the emigrant uh, gap region and right on one side is Bear Valley, and on the other, which is where there was a, a sort of an outpost. If they had just turned towards that direction, they would have been saved and rescued. And cannibalism wouldn't have really been a huge part of their lives. But they actually turned this other direction, and they were completely stranded. And the story goes, they start eating each other. Um, I, I don't think we understand the the full ramifications of what it's like to be lost like that. When Israel was going through the desert and they spent 40 years there in this desert, it would have been no different for them save that God was with them. Pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. They followed God. They trusted him. And so... When we understand, and Ezra is telling this story to the Israelites saying, you know, God has been true to his promises. You might not think so, but you have to remember, it is not because God has made things difficult for you that you are here in this place. It's because you are responsible, which is this, really the second part of what Ezra is trying to say in this prayer, is that you have to realize that God is not guilty for the troubles of this world we have to realize that we are the ones who make the burdens heavy, not God. In chapter 9, 16 through 30, the verses that we read, you will not experience the joy of light burdens until you come to the realization that you and I and the Israelites, not God, is responsible for the troubles of our lives. Ezra's prayer lays this out so well for us. In verses 16 to 30. And in it, 
he takes quite a long time to confess his sins and the sins of the people together. Confession and repentance are an essential part of making burdens light. You wouldn't think so because those words, repentance, confessions, they sound heavy. It actually sounds as though it's, it's counterintuitive really to think that when you confess sin, when you really understand and grapple with what you have done wrong, that just sounds so onerous and so heavy that it doesn't sound light at all. Quite the opposite. But confession is critical. We must not mistake confession for condemnation. Those are two very different things. Confession is not shame. Confession has guilt as a part of it, but guilt is never the end of it. Guilt is only a means to an end. Guilt is not guilt for guilt's sake. It's not for the sake of feeling angst and sorrow. Grieving is not the end of confession and repentance. So the goals of confession and repentance are very important. We must not mistake it. Because God doesn't want you to feel miserable for your whole life. We must not think that repentance is about misery. Rather, that's a false guilt. And false guilt or remorse only leads to self-pity. It feels bad for badness sake. Not because we have sinned against God or we've sinned against another person, but there's a just a pang of guilt that just lasts. And it also, that pang only lasts for a moment. And then we sort of stuff it into the corners of our hearts to be kept for another day. I want to give you an example of what true confession looks like, true repentance, and it's the confession of David, King David. He committed two really horrific sins, the sin of murder by killing Uriah, the sin of adultery by having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And one thing for sure is that David was a a person of authority. I mean, he really... As much as we might say, well, Bathsheba was complicit, and yes, she is responsible too, but you have to understand, David is the king. I mean, there are very few women in David's time who could have resisted someone like David. So David was absolutely guilty of two very, very treacherous sins against God, and also against others. But listen to how David's confession and repentance plays out in Psalm chapter 51, verse 4. It's, David's confessional psalm, his song of repentance. And he says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now you have to listen to what David is saying there, and I'm sure you have a question. The question is, is it really against only God? Clearly it wasn't. He had killed Uriah. He had had an affair with Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah, certainly. And you could say even Bathsheba as well. Wasn't he simply a patriarchal man taking advantage of a woman? You see, here's the problem. Is that if he only felt guilt against Bathsheba and Uriah, it can lead very quickly to and degrade itself to self-pity only. That's sort of how remorse alone, apart from God, works. It's that we feel sorry for ourselves for 
the consequences of what happened to ourselves. You feel bad about what has happened to your life. Because suddenly David has these problems in his life. He could have gone down that road. Oh, now I have this child that I have to deal with. Oh, now I have to deal with these the fact that people are gossiping in my palace. Or there's all sorts of advisors who are now advising me this way. And my kingdom is slowly losing, I'm losing grip over what I have. That's not repentance. That's just feeling sorry for yourself. He could have yelled at himself, felt guilty for his messed up marriage and his family. He could have said that he, he no longer deserves this kingdom. Woe is me. But in the midst of the self-loathing and the hemming and hawing of how he doesn't deserve anything, the one thing he doesn't have is repentance. That even self-pity eventually passes. And so you might have experienced this or seen this from people you care about, is that you have a conversation with a person. They say, I'm sorry. They feel really bad. But the next day, Suddenly, you say, actually, I don't feel bad anymore, and actually, I think it's your fault after all. That happens quite often. If you're honest with yourself, when you're in the middle of conflict, you can experience guilt without experiencing repentance. And that's really a false guilt or a, a, a self-condemnatory guilt that really has no repentant heart at all. A true repentance is not self-protecting, and it is ongoing, and it is regular. True confession knows that before the action of sin, there's the heart of sin. And I, when I see Psalm 51.4, that's what I see in David, why he goes to God and says, I've sinned against you. Because what David understood was that the action of adultery and murder flowed forth not from the act itself, but the heart that preceded the act. It's exactly why in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes and lays out that very case for all of us to see. He says, if you are angry, you murder. If you lust, you commit adultery. And I think we all want to minimize that a little bit. We all want to say, oh, there's no way that I am a murderer because I've been angry. I think everyone, if we're honest with ourselves, is there anyone amongst us who is not a murderer in Jesus' definition? Or is not an adulterer or an adulteress in Jesus' definition? According to Jesus' definition, we all have done these things. We're not just angry people. We're murderers. And David is a man after God's own heart, clearly someone who actually did these things, but he came to realize that he had always done these things before the act actually happened. So when he comes to God and says, against you only have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight, he's acknowledging not just the act, but the heart behind the act. That's why his confession was repentant. It owned everything about who he was. This is at the core who I am. And that's why also God forgave him. Because God is a, a loving God. He is steadfast in his love, all, in all of his ways. And so when you are that person, 
you experience freedom. And it's also why the person who is angry and feels guilty but does not actually repent of their sin and turn to God and acknowledge the depth of their sin, why they continue in that cycle, condemnation, guilt, self-pity, and it just cycles again and again and again. And the impact of that is dramatic, generational really, because when you are like that, if I'm like that as a father, well, if I'm angry at my children, we should not be surprised if they're angry. Or they're feeling struggle and guilt, depressions, sorrow, self-pity. And that just cycles to the next generation and the next. The point of verses 16 through 30 is that sorrow over sin and a desire to change due to the realization that we are the cause of our own burdens. That's the point that we need to get and take away from this. We have rejected God. And anything that we face today is a consequence, not merely of our actions, but our hearts behind the actions. And the perspective difference is what defines a Christian from a non-Christian. The Christian feels guilty over sin. But the Christian also takes ownership of their rebellion against God, first and foremost, over every sin. It's not just that we hurt someone, it's that we have rebelled against God in hurting someone. And when you are in that place, suddenly a work of change begins to happen because it is about God and you're not more concerned about how do people think of me? What do they acknowledge about me? How do they like me or dislike me? The person who is stuck in that pattern and rut of what do people think about me? is the person who has no view of God at all. And it's no wonder that their God is themselves and everyone else around them. That is a burden so great. But non-Christians feel guilty and divert their guilt towards others or something. A disease. I have the disease of drug abuse. I have the disease of alcoholism. I have the disease of certain sorrows, or it's circumstantial, or it's bad people in my life, my family, my friends that I've hung out with, or it's bad luck or fate. Something external is the cause of who I am versus I, at the core of who I am, is rebellious against God. Christians acknowledge that. And realize that and wrestle with that and come to grips with the lack of ability to rescue ourselves. If we look at verses 16 through 17, it summarizes what has to be at the forefront of our standing before God and others. Listen to what Ezra says before God. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. It was not about God abandoning Israel. It was about Israel abandoning God. It was not, God, why did you do this to me? It was, God, we deserved everything we received and more. And again, 
the circumstances could be the same. You could have two people having some dreaded disease or having a tragic event or having financial trial and difficulty. One person says, God, why did you do this to me? I've done all these things for you. The other person says, God, I deserve so much worse than what's happening to me. And yet I still experience, God, your peace and your joy. Same circumstances, different perspective. How can that be? It has to be solely on the basis of the fact that we realize that we are the problem, not God. These are people standing in the midst of a new temple in a new city that is a shadow of the glory it once was. Most of us have a hard time downgrading what we have today. Imagine having a really beautiful house, like just the, the most technologically advanced gadgets and car and everything, and suddenly downgrade to a small condo, or maybe just a small apartment, one-bedroom apartment, or maybe having to sell your really nice car and get a used 1980 Corolla. Someone has that, sorry. But um, just downgrading. It's hard to downgrade, isn't it? It really is. And when the Israelites were standing there in the midst of this so-called new temple and new Jerusalem, it was a pittance compared to what it used to be. That's why actually some of them started crying when they first saw this, because they thought, this is nothing like what we used to have. They finally rebuilt this wall, but it was difficult to be in this place. And so the perspective difference was going to be either, oh, we, we don't have what we used to have, or thanks be to God, you rescued us. Another thing about this confession that you must not miss is it's a communal confession. I don't know if you really get that, because we tend to think that confession and repentance is always individualistic. That is a, a byproduct of our Western culture and society. Individualism, even more so than ever before, especially again with the advent of social media, is that it's all about what you think is what is true and right. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Again, the New Testament, especially if you read Paul's letters and James's letters and Peter and John, most of the pronouns are plural, not singular. And especially also in the Old Testament, we see that it's always community-based. And what you have to realize is that this is a communal confession. That is that when one part suffers, we all suffer. When there's a sin that is in one part of the body, it impacts the whole body, just like a cancer. And we don't go and just ramrod and just go and do whatever we can to demolish the person who is the so-called sinner. We acknowledge that we are just as culpable as any person in this room. We commit the same sins. Again, if we hold steadfast to how Jesus determines what sin looks like, that anger is the heart that leads to, uh, to murder and lust is what leads to adultery and so forth and so on, that's a communal sin. That impacts our body. And so therefore, our confession must be communal. Our, the, the part that we do. And so one thing we're going to do as we're preparing for the next 
phase of our Sunday worship in this new building is that we're going to have a communal confessional part of it where together, not to be ritualistic, but rather to say that we have sinned against you, O God. And by the cross of Christ, we have been redeemed together, not just individually, but together. And so we'll do that every Sunday as we remind ourselves that sin is not just me sinning or you sinning, but it's we do it together and we need God's grace together. Notice also that this confession is not just communal, but it's generational. Ezra and Nehemiah are confessing the sins of their fathers. I know that many of us might think that this means, does this mean that sin generationally is has a, a curse notion to it? That if my great-great-great-great-grandfather committed a certain type of evil or sin or act, that future generations are cursed. I want to take it this way and help you to understand what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of generational sin is that, and I use the word anger again, or fear, let's say anger or fear. If I am an angry person, and my natural default mode is anger, obviously the, the children that I raise are going to be raised in anger, where they're constantly afraid of me lashing out or being enraged. And that fear will be something in which they live and left unchecked, that will rule over their heart and it will pass down to generation upon generation. They too will become angry and fearful. And they will actually, when they have their own children, will do the same and it just keeps on going. Any sin will have that type of impact generationally because we cannot help but go outside of who we are and how we act and behave. And you all know this, when one person acts a certain way, there is a sort of a centripetal force around that person. If I'm angry and just with whatever little thing that sets me off, then all the people around me are walking on eggshells and making sure that they don't disturb my peace. That as soon as the garage door opens and they hear the car, my car coming in, suddenly all my kids scatter and instead of doing what they were doing is they're going to do their homework and look studious. That type of fear is experienced and anger is experienced in a home. It has a centripetal force. The whole group of people around them at work, friendships, everyone is catering to that one person and making sure they're okay. That gets passed down from generation to generation. That is generational sin. You could take any sin and see the implications of that generationally. This is a darkness that comes out. And it is a cop-out to say, well, it's in the genes. Or it's a disease in our family. No, it's a self-centeredness that no one ever wants to really call out. Or to say, this is a sin against God. I agree with James Boyce. He's a Formerly a pastor, he passed away not that about a, a decade ago. He says that some forms of psychiatry encourage this kind of thinking. Many church pulpits wallow in it. But when revival comes, people stop trying to excuse themselves by what others, even their parents, have done and instead confess their sin and wrongdoing openly. It is a cop-out to say that, well, my parents sinned against me, 
And so therefore, this is how I am. You just need to accept me how I am. If that were the case, we would have no hope. The only hope we would have is either Ritalin or Prozac. We would think that if I take a drug or get in certain type of therapy, that's our only hope. But revival always happens when people start coming up with excuses and instead for the first time say, I have sinned against the Lord. You and you alone, O God, have I sinned against. It's not about my parents. It's not not about my friends. It's not about even that evil person who did this wrong against me. And I can't tell you how many people who are still being enslaved by evil people who have done a wrong against you. I'm not trying to dismiss their evil. But I am here to say that God has a freedom for you. And until you realize that our sin is ours alone, only then will we experience that freedom. And will burdens be lightened, finally. Until that happens, we'll always be overburdened. You know, last week I I shared about gospel community. And one of the aspects of a true gospel community is that we share together. Not just our goods, but also our weaknesses, our sins. James says that we're to confess our sins to one another. We don't believe that text talks about confessing your sins to a pastor or a priest, as the Roman Catholic Church believes. But that there is a power when we confess sin to one another because we're more concerned about what God thinks about that sin than what that person who hears that sin thinks about me. But when I'm more concerned about that person's opinion of me, I never gain freedom. Never. It's always going to control who I am. And so when Ezra is saying this prayer and saying it amongst the people, he's saying, Oh God, you are the one whom we've sinned against. And it's not because of Persia who messed us up, but it's because of ourselves. Only then... This chapter 9, verse 32, all the way to 10, the rest of chapter 10 makes sense. That there's a response to this, and it's the response is the joy of light burdens. Let me emphasize this to the utmost. Joy is not found in the absence of burden. Joy is found in the lightness of burden. Joy is not found in the absence of burden Joy is found in the lightness of burden. It's the problem with us is that we think that once we are free from all burden, that's when we're really happy. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that's not true. And the way we know that's not true is we see that Jesus makes it so clear for us that that's not true. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, truly the light burden text, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, he could have said, for my yoke is easy and you will no longer have burdens anymore. But he doesn't say that, does he? He actually says that your yoke, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meaning that you will have a burden 
It's just going to be a new burden. It's going to be light. Look at the words he uses to describe this burden. Rest and easy. Rest and easy. I don't think, when I hear the word burden, rest and easy do not come to mind. Heavy comes to mind. And that's what we see in chapter 9, verse 32 through 1039. Listen to what the Israelites say in verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And then verses 35 to 36, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. I give you those two verses because they're, they're words that you don't think of as light, restful, and easy. We are taking on ourselves the obligation to give yearly. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground. So the people of Israel are responding to what God has done. And they're deciding, I'm going to obligate myself. I'm going to give of all that I have freely out of the joyous nature of my heart in response No one is forcing them to do anything. These seem like burdensome things to give, to be hospitable, to be caring, to be loving, to be other-centered. You know, when I was listening to the the announcements that Chad was giving, I don't know how many times, well, we're going to have a fundraiser for Zimbabwe about this. The cyclone, the kids are going to do this. And uh, the... I forgot which groups. There were three groups. So high school students, there was a group of junior hires, and then, and if you're listening to that, I wonder, did you think, that's a lot of asking. It's a lot of burden. Can't believe you're asking for all. When I hear that, I think it would be burdensome if it's just about giving money for these causes. And there's something called donor fatigue. The more you ask of people of something, eventually they get tired of being asked. It's absolutely true, unless we understand the motivation of the asking. The motivation of the asking is not help these poor people in Africa. The motivation of asking must always be from our hearts if I have received infinitely amount of blessing from our gracious God, then anything that I give is but a a poor comparison to that reality. And so the Israelites, after confessing of sin being forgiven, understanding all the blessings that God has given, then the giving aspect of it and the response aspect of it becomes so free. In our first trip to Africa in 2005, I went with five guys. And we built, we had this opportunity to build one of the first care points. It was really the second care point of Hands at Work. So very early stages of Hands at Work as an organization. So we're building this one community And it was hard work. You know what we did is we went and dug ditches, like huge trenches for piping, for plumbing. And it was in the hot African sun, just uh, just digging ditches. That's what we, we spent this money and time to go to Africa to dig these ditches. And it was hard work. You end up with blisters and you're tired. But as we were digging, I can still remember our conversations. There was so much joy 
in the middle of it. Regardless of the blisters or the heat or the energy spent or the money spent to go there, there was joy. Now, if I was doing that as a result of maybe committing a crime and then going to jail and then having to dig that same ditch, it would have been miserable. Act the same. But what is the difference? The context. The context and the reason and the motivation totally transforms the response. And so until we have this perspective change, and the perspective change has to be, has God truly done what he said he did? Is he a, is he a God of his word? Has he kept his promise? And if we really believe that in Christ he has kept his promise, then the response of worship, of doing anything that we do in this world, of obedience, can actually be light and joyous, as Jesus speaks of. Let me close with this story. Kelly Giss, uh, Gissendainer was on death row for two decades for the murder of her husband. And while on death row, she was transformed by the gospel completely. She came to understand that Jesus died for her. She was so moved by what Jesus did for her that all she did while she was in prison was study the Bible. And she began to study theology. And then she began to teach a bunch of women the Bible. She would counsel them through air vents. They would just confess her sin, their sins and all their struggles and worries and just the difficulties of life, which most of them had, obviously, because they're in prison. And she would be speaking through air vents to tell them about the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. In fact, she was so changed that many, many people, Christians all over the world, and especially in the United States, wrote to the governor and said, please, this is one woman. If you should just commute her sentence to life imprisonment, it would, she deserves it. There's one person who deserves it. She deserves it. But the governor decided not to do that. And this is what she said uh, as her oncoming date of execution came. She said, I have learned firsthand that no one, not even me, is beyond redemption through God's grace and mercy. I've learned to place my hope in the God I now know, the God whose plans and promises are made known to me in the whole story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. On the day of her death, Witnesses could hear her preaching as she's walking to the execution chamber. She is preaching the gospel to herself. We've used that phrase a lot. Remember, Jesus has given his life for you. God loved you so much. He has saved you. He has brought you into his family. You are set free. Well, she is saying that as she's walking to the death chamber. She's praying and singing loudly and the inmates and the guards could hear her singing one song someone who understood what it meant to be saved by grace john newton a slave trader the most despicable of all occupations and yet john newton when he came to know christ realizing how much of a, a worm he was wrote those powerful words amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So there she goes, singing that song as she is led to her death. 
When I listen to Kelly's story, I hear a story of light burden. Not burden-free, but light burden. She still went to her death, but forever free. What frees me in you is not that, poof, all your troubles go away if you're a Christian. If you are a believer of Christ, remember you worship a God who died on a cross, who bore a curse on a tree for you. So certainly God does not promise that we'll never have troubles in this world. But instead, Jesus says in John 16:33, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus bore our burdens. He bore our shame. He bore our guilt. He gives us new identity. He sets us free. And he empowers us to have joy regardless of the circumstances so that we will have light burdens and joy forever. I hope that unleashes a response of ministry, service, forgiveness, love, care, compassion, in this church. Let's pray together. Father, you alone are good. Our sin is first against you and you alone. And I do believe that until we realize that to be true and it is our heart, we will never truly be free and we will never experience the joy of light burden. I pray for those who are struggling with self-pity, condemnation, judgment, criticism, a lack of grace for others, a a blame-shifting. Maybe some our hearts are so prone to think, you did this to me, versus me doing this to myself against the holy God. Help us to see, O Lord, that we are our greatest problem, but you have a You have an answer to that, and his name is Jesus Christ, who bore that burden on a tree so that we might be set free forever. So help us, O Lord, as we take of this this drink, this bread, that we'd remember how much you have done for us. We praise you and we bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.